Hi there. You're listening to 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. This season, we showcase all things books as part of our Books That Changed My Life Festival. To learn more about festival programming, visit book-festival.mmjccm.org. I'm Jason Blitman from the Lambert Center, and on today's episode, I talk to author and illustrator Dan Santat about his prolific career and his new graphic memoir, A First Time for Everything, which comes out on February 28th. Dan is the Caldecott Medal award-winning and New York Times best-selling author and illustrator of The Adventures of Beekle, The Unimaginary Friend, and the road trip time travel adventure picture book, Are We There Yet? My favorite book of Dan's is the gorgeous picture book, After the Fall. Dan's artwork is also featured in numerous picture books, chapter books, and middle grade novels, including last year's graphic novel, The Aquanaut. Dan lives in Southern California with his wife, two kids, and many, many pets. And now please enjoy my conversation with Dan Santat. I have a bunch of your books stacked next to me, including two copies of After the Fall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I was saying to Matt earlier, I need to have my copy and then my emergency copy if I find out that somebody doesn't have one and I need to give it to them. (laughs) I know I have a gift. (laughs) that's so flattering thank you so much i love it so 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 much but let's talk about you enough about me let's talk about you so i understand that you started as an art tinkerer as a kid yes yeah it was the thing that i think i gravitated to because i just i i remember having coloring assignments in kindergarten and I would take it beyond the borders, you know, the, oh, color this cabin. And then I would color the grass and the stars and everything. And I remember my teacher having a conference with my parents saying, uh, your son is pretty gifted in the arts. And my parents were just like, yeah, that's great. But what we really want him to do is grow up and be a doctor. And so I grew up, my mom had my, developed an autoimmune disease. She developed lupus when I was born. Because she was ill, she couldn't she couldn't travel around too much. She couldn't do a whole lot of, of things. And so I think there was a part of her that just felt maybe a little guilty, maybe like, well, you know, you're here alone with me. You're an only child. Here are these markers and crayons and paper. Do what you love. Part of the motivation that my mom gave me was that she would enter my artwork in the local county fair, and I would just start winning ribbons. And it was a rush for me to draw and enter things in, in the competition. And that really was my art education because my family really deterred me from taking art classes. So a lot of it was just me growing up and copying pictures of Marvel comics and things like that and just challenging myself a little bit further each time. I never got any formal art education, but it was my, it was my escape growing up as a kid. It's an interesting story almost of nurture versus nature. They could take away your pencils, but you still were innately an artist. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I will see a lot of parents these days who are just hovering over their kids, like looking at every aspect of their education. I've kind of gotten to a point in my parenting where I think the best course of action is to stay out of the way and just make sure that my kids don't get addicted to drugs or or alcohol Mm -hmm. and just let them find their own way. Because I think making those mistakes is probably the best way to learn. Yeah. The generation of parents, you know, telling you to do things. I just feel like more often than not, it, it, it feel like it, it harbors maybe resentment 
or yeah. kind of cynicism in your child. My parents were like, yes, go be you. We encourage you to be an artist and do your thing. But I'm like, I really wish I knew how to do my taxes. <laughs> there is an interesting happy medium, I think, to be had. No, there's definitely some truth to that because the the, the depravity of art for me was, you know, mm. that as a result, you're right. I, 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 I was a pretty well-rounded kid. Like I have a microbiology degree that I don't use. <laughs> Uh, you know, I almost became a dentist. It wasn't until my roommates in college said, wait, 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 like, this isn't even what you love. This, you should do something that you love. And they were yeah. the ones that encouraged me to apply to art school. And then when I finally got the permission to create art and be an artist and go to art school, there was just this insatiable desire to just inhale information and try to do the best as I could. How did it go from drawing to <laughs> the concept of telling stories? When I came into art school, there were newspaper articles everywhere saying you can start animating with the computer and they're paying all this money. All these big companies are paying all this money for you to learn how to do this. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, it'd be amazing to work at someplace like Disney or Pixar or DreamWorks. And I went to the art school and I remember maybe a year into the program, I took my first computer animation course and it was absolutely frustrating because it took 14 weeks just to make one minute of film. <laughs> and if anybody has ever opened a 3D software package, it's, you can tell that an engineer had crafted this program because maybe, maybe mm. for example, you generate like a tin can and you just want to make the tin can shiny rather than a button that says, make this tin can shiny. It says, you know, oh, uh, be here, Calculate the specularity, you know, between the value of zero and one along the sine wave. And you're just like, this is, I just want to make the can shiny. Yeah. And just down the hall, there was a children's book writing an illustration course. And it was taught by this wonderful teacher. Her name was Deborah Lattimore. The way she sold it was just saying, hey, picture books at 32 pages. It's a really friendly community. We all encourage everyone to you know, do their best. And we, we, we really wish for, you know, success for everybody. And, and I remember her mantra was not if you get published, but when you get published, the idea of being able to tell a whole story in 32 pages just seemed palatable to me. You know, I didn't have to have a team of people to, to create my vision. Were you, had you been a reader as a kid? I, so, you know, my parents were very, utility kind of readers, you know, it was the functionality of reading to improve yourself to get into college. So, mm. like, well, if you want to get better at science, read a science book. If you want to get better at math, read a math book. So I really had a hard time connecting with the books that teachers would recommend. Uh, I had a paper route when I was a kid and I remember, oh, it was this great guy. His name was Kyle Hopple. <laughs> and he had this giant chest filled with all the Marvel comics. He would just collect every Marvel comic every month. And I remember I was substituting for his route and he opens up the chest and then, you know, I said, what is this? And he's like, this is Thor, you know? And then he just starts going through the whole storyline of Thor. And then he goes, oh yeah. And then it connects into this series known as the X-Men. I'm like, tell me about the X-Men. <laughs> and it was just this whole thing. And it was this soap opera that I was just like, I'm all in. Wow. And so he eventually gave up his paper route and gave it to me. And then I used all my paper route money to start collecting Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. And so back in the day, 
you know, it would be in this wire spindle at like a liquor store or uh, my place. My place that goes Walden Books back. back oh, uh-huh, Books was the thing. Uh-huh. And you would go there. And I remember I would read all the Marvel comics. I was an X-Men guy, Hulk, Spider-Man and all that. But then it got a little stale because, you know, as monthly comics go, you could have Batman or whoever strapped to a chair covered in dynamite. And, you know, Joker's laughing like, see you later, Batman. Hope you get out of this one, you know. And you're and, and of course you're thinking like well yeah it's Batman's comic he's gonna of course he'll get out of this so it, it right. just got a little stale right. now meanwhile just two feet away is a bookshelf of the adult comics the quote unquote adult mm. comics and I'm reading this and I'm like oh my gosh characters die there's consequences mm. this is amazing there's more to there's more to the comic world than just the monthly Marvel comics and wow. DC stuff yeah so really the trajectory was drawing as a kid and then later a little bit later seeing that drawings can tell a story and then right after that it was oh there can be stakes and it can be real and it could be exciting would you say that's kind of how your trajectory of going from a doodler to a storyteller? You know what? It's funny that you say that because I reflect on it and I've had discussions with friends about it. And I think I realized that in my heart, my number one passion is storytelling over drawing. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, I wasn't a big reader, but I was someone who loved watching movies, but I would watch anything. And and I realized that the thing that I love most about movies is that they can make you feel. I remember my senior year of high school, we had to do a creative writing assignment. And this lovely teacher, Mrs. Oliver, she gave us this assignment to write a creative story, five pages. I think I did like a 20 page story and I turned it in and she held me aside after class. And she was just like, what are your aspirations after school? And I, said, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go be a doctor. And she's like, are you sure that's something <laughs> you want to do? So mm-hmm. I always had this love for story. But I think the other thing that deterred me was, I think I knew very early on that if there was going to be any Asian American people in, in cinema of any kind, you were probably going to be in like a Kung Fu movie or you were going to mm-hmm. be like beaten up by Steven Seagal in a dark alleyway in, you know, this undercover cop film or things like that. So I'm, you know, and, and also realizing I'm not seeing any Asian filmmakers or of any sort. And I just kind of immediately threw that dream aside at a very early age. I did, I did think the idea of being a filmmaker or an actor or something would have been fun, but I was just someone who was just at a young age, very aware of where my opportunities lie. And I realized that it wasn't going to be in film, mm-hmm. but writing seemed probable because I could draw, I could write text. And there was a period where comics weren't viewed as seriously as regular literature, which still kind of is the popular opinion these days, but I feel like those walls are slowly coming down. Sure. Um, but it was a means for me to kind of generate my own movie by myself. And that's yeah. And that's how. Oh, wow. That's a very yeah. cool way of thinking about it. It's yeah. your own movie. You know, so it's your your work is so fascinating. I mean, you, you're you calling yourself a storyteller, which your work clearly, I think, speaks for itself in terms of storytelling. You are an illustrator for authors. You are an author and illustrator for your own work for picture books. And mm-hmm. you've written graphic memoirs mm-hmm. and other and other graphic novels. Can we talk a little bit about the process of collaborating with somebody versus on your own? 
I know you've said one of the one one of the books that you received had 127 words. Yeah, and then you, you took that and created an entire world. What is that like? So the typical process of it is the author doesn't find the illustrator. It's the publisher's job. So they sell to the publisher. The publisher approaches you thinking you're a good fit for a manuscript. You can take it or leave it. For me, I always see them as these great opportunities. Sometimes they're projects where you say, well, I have to eat. Um, But, you know. I won't ask you which ones those are. Right. But there, (laughs) there are times where you get a project and you look at it and you think, I wish I wrote this. Yeah. Or... I can learn from this. You know, every opportunity I take, it's a learning process. And I do feel like the process of illustrating someone else's manuscript is also a a lesson for me as a writer. How did they approach this and how did I respond to the text? Is there any descriptive language that an author will put in? Some can be a little rigid. Some can say, well, this is happening in this scene, but more often than Mm. not, they leave it open to the interpretation of the illustrator. Cool. One of my favorite collaborators, he's this great Vietnamese author, his name Min Le, and we did this book together called Drawn Together. And one of the lines in the book, for example, said, we create a beautiful world that not even words can describe. And then the art note basically says, illustrate a world that words can't describe. And I'm like, Mm. well, that's a very overwhelming task, but when you're given the challenge and, and they're giving you the freedom to do it, it's a heavy responsibility upon yourself to, to deliver. And mm-hmm. so you kind of just check back into your mental database of all the things that influenced you. And then you inject that into the work. Now, working with an illustrator, working with an author, you're reacting to the words that someone has written. Whereas, you know, if I were to come up with my own story, if I were to write my own book, it's a completely different approach where I will actually spend months, sometimes years, just generating a strong concept. Mm. Um, because I do feel like in terms of a, a really solid story, the concept is really the heart of it. If you have a solid concept, then the writing and the illustrations all just fall into place. And so what my typical approach is, I'll do a loose outline for an idea and then... I have this unconventional method where rather than writing a manuscript and then illustrating the manuscript, I actually make a wordless picture book first. The idea is you never want to be redundant in your work. So you can write the word apple or you can draw a picture of an apple, but you don't want to have both Hmm. on the same page because then you're, you're being redundant, right? So if you can manage to tell a story wordlessly, Then you look at it and say, well, what still needs to be clarified? Or what can I say to make this illustration less narrative and more poetic? Mm. Then you add the the details. So like, for example, in my book, The Adventures of Beeple, The Unimaginary Friend, Mm -hmm. uh, you have this little imaginary friend building a boat and he sails off. And, you know, I could have easily have said he built a boat and set out on a journey to find his friend. But it's already being explained in the illustration. I don't have to say that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, instead I write, he did the unimaginable, mm-hmm. you know, but it means the same thing. I like to equate it to paired figure skating where you have these two athletes working together to synchronize, to do something beautiful, but they don't step on each other's toes. They work together in harmony. And that's how I approach the idea of writing and illustrating together. If one's leaning more to tell the narrative, then you lighten up on the other aspect and so forth. 
Oh, that's so interesting. And in terms of technically, is it pen to paper? Is it digital? What sort of artistic mediums are you using? So when I begin, I always start with a notebook. There's something about allowing yourself to be messy and make mistakes. And when you're typing on a keyboard, you get to see maybe 10, 12 lines of text. Whereas if you have a notebook and you're just scribbling ideas, almost like if you get a jigsaw puzzle and then you just pour the pieces out on the table and you can just see everything all at once, right? Mm. So if I have a notebook, I'll just scribble down ideas. You know, you're crossing things out. You don't care if anything's being misspelled. Maybe things are better expressed by a little sketch. And it's just all laid out in front of you, but you can see all your ideas in one place. But not only that, there's something that translates into writing by hand that just sticks in your mind a lot better. I'll just outline, I'll just throw out ideas. It might be something that I heard in song lyrics. It might be something that I saw a little clip in a movie or a cartoon. And I just throw it down there and I think, well, maybe this is useful for something somewhere. But over time, you're just generating these little tidbits of information and you just look at them. And maybe an idea that you wrote down three or four years ago works with something that you just came up with a week ago. You know, Mm. things like my memoir, which took, gosh, five, six years. I had a graphic novel that just came out, The, the Aquanaut, that mm-hmm. took 11 years. Wow. But not so much because I had writer's block, but more because I was just busy illustrating other people's projects. Sometimes you're so busy working on other people's books that you regretfully have to put your own work off to the side. And that's something I'm trying to rectify right now. I'm going to be 48 this year and I'm looking back and I think, oh, I feel like I should have a bigger body of work, you know? <laughs> I mean, I've read somewhere you have like 150 projects that you've done or something like that. Oh, so, yeah, something like 120. Yeah, something like that. And Okay. Like, right, right. I mean, listen, I want you to feel confident and proud of yourself. You can have as many. I'll just keep buying people after the fall and don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, that, so that's the other thing that you mentioned. Because, you know, the thing about after the fall is that I, I do feel like it's my best work. Mm. up to to this point. I think a lot of people probably think my favorite book is The Adventures of Beagle because it won the Randolph Caldecott medal, right? Right. And I remember having a a bit of a existential crisis with that because there's this thing where maybe you dream of someday winning some major literary award, but then when the day happens and you climb to the top of the mountain, you kind of just look around yourself and you think, well, where do I go from here? After winning the Caldecott medal, I had a little bout of depression for maybe a good four, six months. And I remember talking to a writer friend, Bruce Colville, and I told him, listen, I'm having a hard time because winning this award, I feel like it's something that I have to live up to and that everything I have to do has to live up to that standard. And he stopped and he says, okay, listen, Bill Shakespeare wrote some really great stuff, but he also wrote some real big buckets of yuck. Mm -hmm. Okay. so." You're going to have your hits, you're going to have your misses, but the big picture is that you just keep going. You can't worry about it being perfect or else you're going to go nowhere. And then that's when after the fall came. And and that was something that just, that idea was something that I came up with in art school. And I remember just looking back at one of my old notebooks and I said, oh, this might be a good idea. And, you know, it never went on to win any major literary awards, but I do consider it my best work today. Mm -hmm. And so I hate to say it, but it quieted that, that voice in my head that said, okay, you know what? 
your success wasn't a fluke. You belong here and you deserve to have the success. Mm-hmm. And that one just spurned as a love letter to my wife. The inspiration was something that I came up with in art school. And then I coupled it with life experiences and I made it a love letter to my wife. And that's that's yeah. where I really dig into my stuff. It's interesting that you described your work as concept-based mm-hmm. because if you weren't looking at the illustrations and you just were told the story, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. If you just look at the illustrations and there are no words, it's beautiful. You get the concept so deeply and it's so strong. So to hear you say that that's where you start, yeah, that makes a lot of sense as a reader of the material. So I'm very <laughs> curious to know, once you have your concept for something, at what point on that journey are you like, okay, this is a picture book or this is a graphic novel or this should be something in a different medium that you haven't even thought about yet. Where does that come into the journey? So I leave that to my editor. I mean, there's been a lot of times where I write something and then my editor will say, well, this concept isn't really something that little toddlers are familiar with. That's not something Mm. that a toddler would... Like, I remember the initial idea for the replacements was about a little kid that wants to replace his parents with cool parents. And you discover that cool parents don't necessarily make good parents. I remember explaining this to my editor and she said, well, that's not a concept that little toddler kids are concerned about. They don't Mm -hmm. care if their parents are cool. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you have to take into account and say, oh, I guess that's a good point. So many times I will write manuscripts intended for a picture book audience. And my editor will say, that's not a picture book story. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? And we'll go back and forth about it. And then sometimes... I'm writing something and I know it's for an older audience. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your work changed at all when you became a parent? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I think about my early books, I think to myself, I think this is the book I would have wanted to read when I was a kid. Mm. But that is a very incorrect review, meaning, meaning you might have a more polished view of what your childhood was like. Maybe you thought you were an angel. No, you weren't. What's great about having kids is you basically get to watch your life being lived all over again. There's probably this voice inside you that's screaming, I need to intervene because I know what's going to happen and I don't want them to turn into me. Hmm. And I think that is the wrong course of action. You need to like sit back and just say, okay, they're probably going to make this mistake that I have made. And I've seen generations of other kids make the same mistake. If you give them a warning like, hey, be careful, this might happen, you're daring the child to do that thing. So it's interesting to now talk about a first time for everything. Right. Speaking right. of speaking about your own experience and what you your interpretation of your youth, but also watching your life all over again. Yeah. So a first time for everything <laughs> is your graphic memoir that is about to get released, Mazel Tov. Thank you, thank you. It's beautiful. It's so charming. I think a couple of my big questions are, why this part of your life? And what was it like revisiting it? So this memoir wasn't the initial memoir intended. Mm. I had signed a contract for a different memoir. There was a period in my life where my mother had breast cancer. And there was this cultural clash that I had between my father and myself about how the take care of my mother. My father being the doctor said, I go out, I make the money. Very old 
old school Asian belief of just like, well, we don't cook or clean. That's just not our jobs because we're the men, right? Whereas once my mother got sick and my dad would come home from work and be like, well, where's dinner? And it's like, she's on chemotherapy. She's exhausted. She can't do these things. How old were you? I was 15. Mm. And I remember the difficulty I had of grasping why he couldn't comprehend why he needed to step up for my mom. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be that. And so when I was doing this memoir, the whole idea was about my mother and how I related to her. And then we had this trip to Thailand where I met this entire side of my family that I had never known about because we had lived in America. I'm known as the long lost cousin because I, we're the only, we're the only members of the family that left the country. And so you go there and you meet all these people and you find out a lot more about your parents and you understand why they are the way they are. And that was a huge, very daunting, heavily weighted task that I was putting on myself for a first memoir. There was a lot of emotional heavy lifting that I had had to do. And so I remember turning in two, three drafts to my editor. And she said, these are very angry. This is not something you want to do. And then one day, my 13-year-old son, out of the blue, asks me, dad, when was the first time you fell in love? Wow. he He was getting to an age where he was in school and like some of the girls were taking a fancy to him, right? And I stopped and I thought about it. And I said, Oh my gosh, it was this trip to Europe that I took when I was 13 years old. And I remember telling him the whole story from when I got on the plane and when I got off the plane, he sat there and he said, they let you just run around Paris unsupervised? (laughs) You have to explain to him like, well, this is 1989, like the 1980s, they just let their kids just run off and, and do whatever they wanted. But also that's your takeaway from the story, son. Come on. There was so much. Right, more right, right. <laughs> and so I remember telling my editor this, she said, wait, 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 you had this experience happen to you and you never bothered to tell me about this. And I said, well, yeah, cause we're working on this story. She said, no, no, no. You have this story all mapped out. And it's a story about summer romance in Europe. And it was true. You need to do this. You need to write this. I remember just immediately getting excited. Like, this is a really great idea. Mm -hmm. And right after that, I remember giving a call to one of my good friends, Raina Telgemeier. And she was really helpful because in the book, there's a girl named Amy who I had met on the trip who ended up becoming my first kiss and the first girl that I ever had feelings for. I gathered everybody who I was still friends with from that trip. And I said, hey, you guys, remember that really great trip to Europe that we took back in like the late 80s? I'm writing a book about it. When everyone's like, oh, that's exciting. And then Amy says, wait, really? And then of Mm. course I went into a sidebar and I said to her, I said, Obviously, you are the most important part of the story. And I just want to know if, if it's okay. And she was flattered. She was just like, I, my kids, we, we know who you are. We know what your books are. Wow. You know, whatever you need. And so she shared photos. She transferred wow. the entire journal to me. Names of hotels, like what the weather was like that day, what we ate, 
Um, and so it's been this amazing experience, almost like a, a reunion. Yeah, you know? like a time capsule. Yeah, to the point where, yeah. to the point where, like, I might share drawings uh, from the book on Instagram, and then you'll see someone say, "Oh, I remember that part of the trip," and you look ah. at them and you say, "Wait a sec, how long have you been watching me, and not even <laughs> that you've been watching me?" So, That's so cool. Know, like, that, yeah, everybody responded to it very fondly. Everyone had really wonderful memories of the trip, and now it gets to be immortalized in a book. So, yeah, yeah, that's so fantastic. special. I love that so much. It's really beautiful. Kind of in in response to that, you know, this story is obviously very personal for you, but you start looking through all of your work and the Aquanaut, you you go on to say, didn't initially start out to be about your dad, but, but really did turn into that. You talk about after the fall, being inspired by your wife. So there are nuggets from your life kind of scattered through your books, like maybe anthropomorphized a bit. Right, right, right. But this is very much you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, so for me, you latch on to certain emotions and then you project those emotions into the the text. If you're writing something and in the process of writing it, it it triggers that emotion that makes you cry or makes you feel what you want to feel, then, you know, you hope that it translates to other readers who don't have that... Sure. That experience, that memory of that thing, right? Whereas talking about a memoir, I'm thinking about junior high school. I'm thinking about how everyone I've ever spoken to all agree that junior high was the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this period between grade school and high school where they just took all the hormonal adolescent kids and just put them in a completely separate building and just said, have at it. Okay. Whoever came up with this idea, it was terrible. Right. right. I just remember so many memories of people, of kids just doing these awful things to other kids. And then you would just scratch your head and say, why are you doing that? Why? And why isn't any adult stopping this? There's a lot of emotional scarring that goes through adolescence and growing up and just trying to fit in. And it, it goes beyond just trying to get a decent education. It's just trying to just get by in life. And, and that's, that's so not was, easy for anybody. Was the book cathartic for you in that way? It was. So there were certain things that I, I discovered about myself because, you know, after leaving my hometown, I really grew to resent that town mm. and thinking, I never want to be back there. Sometimes I would have to go back for the holidays and I might walk down a grocery aisle and I might see someone from my high school. Nope. I can get the cranberry sauce someplace else. I'm out of here. I don't even want to mm-hmm. make eye contact with that person. But as I thought about it and I thought about the pain that I experienced from various things in that generation and in that town growing up, I realized, and this was a big full circle was that if it wasn't for that pain, and how I responded to it, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be telling this story. And so it was this necessary thing that I went through that made me stronger. And for that, I am eternally grateful. If there was a magic genie that asked me if I wanted to live my life all over again, I would not change a thing, which is the surreal conclusion that I never thought I would come to after Mm -hmm. this entire process. If anything, I embrace that childhood even more and I'm grateful for it. And I don't look at that town with such angst anymore. So yes, that's really absolutely great. cathartic. Absolutely. <laughs> cathartic. Yeah. I'm very glad to hear that. And I think 
everyone who has ever dealt with the trauma of their middle school years, that is just an important reminder and a good thing to hear that because we made it through, we are the people we are today. And that's- Would you say great. that it's a given? Like everyone's going to get their scars going through? It's a nice reminder. It's a good reminder. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah. But yes. Okay. The final question. Yeah. What is a book that changed your life? Um, so I have, I have two. You're allowed to have two. Okay. So my favorite book is Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Stitch. Mm. And I just really loved his lighthearted approach towards these deep, dark moments of his family, you know, mm. but, but more importantly, I think the most important book that really made an impact on me is Gene Yang's American Born Chinese, which it was one of these things where you looked at it and you, there were, I remember growing up with a lot of shame, not feeling Asian enough, especially growing up in a white Christian town where, you know, you're in a population of less than 5% is Asian, less than 3% is Asian, right? Wow. And my parents just wanted me to assimilate, just try to fit in with the other kids because that's how you're going to get by. So there was just a part of me that felt like I was betraying my Asianness. And just feeling a little guilty. I remember getting to this point of the book where the main character woke up one day and he was white. And he was so thrilled. He just said, oh my gosh, life is going to be so much easier now. And there was that deep, dark truth that just revealed itself to his pages. Like, I can't believe it. I have had those feelings and I have felt terrible about it. And it was one of the stories where you realize maybe if I just am open and completely honest about all the feelings that I've had, there will be someone out there that had those same feelings. And so I just slowly started saying things like, Hey, did you ever blah, 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 blah. And people would say, yeah, I thought that was just me. And I'd say, hmm. yeah, no, that's okay. I thought I was alone in that. And once I just started slowly revealing deep, dark feelings that I had, I realized it was very therapeutic. Like it wasn't this thing that was burdening me. It wasn't this thing that was holding me down anymore. In fact, it was the opposite. It was liberating. Now that it's out there, I don't have to be a prisoner to those feelings. And that was actually the seed because I remember meeting Gene after reading that book at the Miami Book Festival. And I told him straight up, I said, this book like spoke to my soul. And we got to know each other and we realized oh, we both have had the same struggle about our parents wanting us to grow up and be doctors, engineers, and things like that. And Gene heard my life story and he said, you should write a book about that. And I said, I don't know if I'm capable of that. He said, no, I, I believe that you can. I, you know, just, and here we are, <laughs> what was it? Like, here we are 12 years later since that. Wow. I finally, yeah. So wow. Coming through what an incredible full circle moment. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's really, I think, an important thing for people to hear and understand. I mean, if there's anything to take away from writing a memoir, it's your own, it's your best therapy without having to pay for a psychiatrist. It's the, it's the best. It is the best. I'm sure you're also dealing with like other struggles and stressors that come from writing the memoir. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, it really depends heavily on the topic. But as a result of making this memoir, I've come to an inner peace that I have that I'm ready yeah, to wow. do, go back and revisit that other one. I've come to peace with my family and wow. everything like that. Like, I'm ready to do the other one. 
Yeah. It's amazing. I never thought that I would ever be in this place in my life. And it's just, it's been the best. Wow. It also got me through the pandemic too. Hey, right. We all needed one one of those things too. Um, Dan, I'm so grateful for your time. You are so so prolific. You have a gajillion things going on at one time. And so to spare a little bit of it for me, I'm super honored and grateful. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you very much. And we look forward to the book coming out and all of the, the next fantastic, incredible things that are coming your way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day, Dan. Talk to you soon. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Conversations at the JCC are made possible by Zabars and Zabars.com. Books That Changed My Life Festival is made possible thanks to the Harold and Fang Foundation, the Israel Office of Cultural Affairs, the Consulate General of Israel, New York, PJ Library, and in partnership with the Jewish Book Council. You can shop the festival books with our partner, Books Are Magic, a family-owned independent bookstore in Brooklyn committed to being a welcoming, friendly, and inclusive space for all people. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our editor is Matt Temkin with music written and performed by Peril Wolf. We'll be back in two weeks with another behind-the-scenes look at the world of books. In the meantime, we hope you'll join us at the festival. Check out book-festival.mmjccm.org. Make sure to listen to our other podcast episodes and like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Until next time. <laughs>